0: Part Two, Chapter Three of Gulliver's Travels. This is LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Part Two, A Voyage to Brobdingnag, Chapter Three. The author sent for to court the queen buys him of his master the farmer and presents him to the king he disputes with his majesty's great scholars an apartment at court provided for the author he is in high favour with the queen he stands up for the honour of his own country he quarrels with the queen's dwarf the frequent labours i underwent every day made in a few weeks a very considerable change in my health the more my master got by me the more insatiable he grew I had quite lost my stomach, and was almost reduced to a skeleton. The farmer observed it, and concluding I must soon die, resolved to make as good a hand of me as he could. While he was thus reasoning, and resolving with himself, a sardral, or gentleman usher, came from court, commanding my master to carry me immediately thither, for the diversion of the queen and her ladies. Some of the latter had already been to see me and reported strange things of my beauty, behaviour, and good sense. Her Majesty, and those who attended her, were beyond measure delighted with my demeanour. I fell on my knees, and begged the honour of kissing her imperial foot. But this gracious princess held out a little finger towards me, after I was set on the table, which I embraced in both my arms, and put the tip of it with the utmost respect to my lip." She made me some general questions about my country and my travels, which I answered as distinctly in as few words as I could. She asked whether I could be content to live at court. I bowed down to the board of the table, and humbly answered, that I was my master's slave, but if I were at my own disposal, I should be proud to devote my life to Her Majesty's service. So then she asked my master whether he was willing to sell me at a good price. He, who apprehended I could not live a month, was ready enough to part with me, and demanded a thousand pieces of gold, which were ordered him on the spot, each piece being about the bigness of eight hundred moidors. But allowing for the proportion of all things between that country and Europe, and the high price of gold among them, was hardly so great a sum as a thousand guineas would be in England. I then said to the Queen, since I was now Her Majesty's most humble creature and vassal, I must beg the favour, that Glumdal Clitch, who had always tended me with so much care and kindness, and understood to do it so well, might be admitted into her service, and continue to be my nurse and instructor. Her Majesty agreed to my petition, and easily got the farmer's consent, who was glad enough to have his daughter preferred at court, and the poor girl herself was not able to hide her joy. My late master withdrew, bidding me farewell and saying he had left me in a good service. To which I replied not a word, only making a slight bow. The Queen observed my coldness, and when the farmer was gone out of the apartment, asked me the reason. I made bold to tell Her Majesty that I owed no other obligation to my late master than his not dashing out the brains of a poor, harmless creature found by chance in his fields, which obligation was amply recompensed, by the gain he had made in showing me through half the kingdom, and the price he had now sold me for. That the life I had since led was laborious enough to kill an animal of ten times my strength. That my health was much impaired by the continual drudgery of entertaining the rabble every hour of the day. And that, if my master had not thought my life in danger, Her Majesty would not have got so cheap a bargain." But as I was out of all fear of being ill-treated under the protection of so great and good an empress, the ornament of nature, the darling of the world, the delight of her subjects, the phoenix of the creation, so I hoped my late master's apprehensions would appear to be groundless, for I had already found my spirits revive, by the influence of her most august presence. This was the sum of my speech, delivered with great improprieties and hesitation, the latter part was altogether framed in the style peculiar to that people, whereof I learned some phrases from Glomdalclitch, while she was carrying me to court. The queen, giving great allowance for my defectiveness in speaking, was, however, surprised at so much wit and good sense in so diminutive an animal. She took me in her own hand and carried me to the king, who was then retired to his cabinet. His majesty, a prince of much gravity and austere countenance, not well observing my shape at first view, asked the queen, after a cold manner, how long it was since she grew fond of Splucknuck. For such it seems he took me to be, as I lay upon my breast on Her Majesty's right hand. But this princess, who has an infinite deal of wit and humour, set me gently on my feet upon the scrutoir, and commanded me to give His Majesty an account of myself, which I did in a very few words. And Glumdalclitch, who attended at the cabinet door, and could not endure I should be out of her sight, being admitted, confirmed all that had passed from my arrival at her father's house. The king, although he be as learned person as any in his dominions, had been educated in the study of philosophy, and particularly mathematics. Yet, when he observed my shape exactly, and saw me walk erect, before I began to speak, conceived I might be a piece of clockwork, which is, in that country, arrived to a very great perfection, contrived by some ingenious artist. But when he heard my voice, and found what I delivered to be regular and rational, he could not conceal his astonishment. He was by no means satisfied with the relation I gave him, of the manner I came into his kingdom, but thought it a story concerted between Glomdalclitch and her father— who had taught me a set of words to make me sell at a better price. Upon this imagination he put several other questions to me, and still received rational answers, no otherwise defective than by a foreign accent, and an imperfect knowledge of the language, with some rustic phrases which I had learned at the farmer's house, and did not suit the polite style of a court. His Majesty sent for three great scholars, who were then in their weekly waiting, according to the custom in that country, These gentlemen, after they had a while examined my shape with much nicety, were of different opinions concerning me. They all agreed that I could not be produced according to the regular laws of nature, because I was not framed with the capacity of preserving my life, either by swiftness, or climbing of trees, or digging holes in the earth. They observed by my teeth, which they viewed with great exactness, that I was a carnivorous animal. Yet most quadrupeds, being an overmatch for me, and field-mice, with some others, too nimble, they could not imagine how I should be able to support myself, unless I fed upon snails and other insects, which they offered, by my learned arguments, to insie that I could not possibly do. One of these virtuosi seemed to think that I might be an embryo, or abortive birth, but this opinion was rejected by the other two who observed my limbs to be perfect and finished, and that I had lived several years, as it was manifest from my beard. The stumps whereof they plainly discovered through a magnifying glass. They would not allow me to be a dwarf, because my littleness was beyond all degrees of comparison. For the queen's favourite dwarf, the smallest ever known in that kingdom, was near thirty feet high. After much debate, they concluded unanimously— that I was only Rel Plum's Scalcah, which is interpreted literally, Lusus Naturae, a determination exactly agreeable to the modern philosophy of Europe, whose professors, disdaining the old evasion of occult cases, whereby the followers of Aristotle endeavoured in vain to disguise their ignorance, have invented this wonderful solution of all difficulties, to the unspeakable advancement of human knowledge. After this decisive conclusion. I entreated to be heard a word or two. I applied myself to the king, and assured his majesty, that I came from a country which abounded with several millions of both sexes, and of my own stature, where the animals, trees, and houses were all in proportion, and where, by consequence, I might be able to defend myself, and to find sustenance, as any of his majesty's subjects could do here. Which I took for a full answer to those gentlemen's arguments. To this they only replied with a smile of contempt, saying that the farmer had instructed me very well in my lesson. The king, who had a much better understanding, dismissing his learned men, sent for the farmer, who, by good fortune, was not yet gone out of town. Having therefore first examined him privately, and then confronted him with me and the young girl, "'His Majesty began to think that what we told him might possibly be true. "'He desired the Queen to order that a particular care should be taken of me, "'and was of opinion that Glumdal Clitch should still continue in her office of tending me, "'because, he observed, we had a great affection for each other. "'A convenient apartment was provided for her at court. "'She had a sort of governess appointed to take care of her education— a maid to dress her, and two other servants for menial offices. But the care of me was wholly appointed to herself. The queen commanded her own cabinet maker to contrive a box that might serve me for a bedchamber, after the model that Glumdal-Clitch and I should agree upon. This man was a most ingenious artist, and according to my direction, in three weeks finished for me a wooden chamber of sixteen feet square and twelve feet high. With sash windows, a door, and two closets like a London bedchamber. The board that made the ceiling was to be lifted up and down by two hinges, to put in a bed ready furnished by Her Majesty's upholsterer, which Glumdalclitch took out every day to air, made it with her own hands, and letting it down at night, locked up the roof over me. A nice workman who was famous for little curiosities undertook to make me two chairs with backs and frames of a substance not unlike ivory and two tables with a cabinet to put my things in the room was quilted on all sides as well as the floor and the ceiling to prevent any accident from the carelessness of those who carried me and to break the force of a jolt when i went in a coach i desired a lock for my door to prevent rats and mice from coming in The smith, after several attempts, made the smallest that ever was seen among them, for I have known a larger at the gate of the gentleman's house in England. I made a shift to keep the key in my pocket of my own, fearing Glumdalclitch might lose it. The queen likewise ordered the thinnest silks that could be gotten, to make me clothes not much thicker than an English blanket, very cumbersome till I was accustomed to them. They were, after the fashion of the kingdom— partly resembling the Persian, and partly the Chinese, and are a very grave and decent habit. The Queen became so fond of my company that she could not dine without me. I had a table placed upon the same, at which Her Majesty ate, just as at her left elbow, and a chair to sit on. Glumdalclitch stood on a stool on the floor near my table, to assist and take care of me. I had an entire set of silver dishes, and plates, and other necessaries, which, in proportion to those of the Queen, were not much bigger than what I have seen in a London toy-shop, for the furniture of a baby-house. These my nurse kept in her pocket, in a silver box, and gave me at meals as I wanted them, always cleaning them herself. No person dined with the Queen but the two princesses royal. The eldest, sixteen years old, "'and the younger, at that time, thirteen and a month. "'Her Majesty used to put a bit of meat upon one of my dishes, "'out of which I carved for myself, "'and her diversion was to see me eat in miniature. "'For the Queen, who had indeed but a weak stomach, "'took up, at one mouthful, "'as much as a dozen English farmers could eat at a meal, "'which to me was for some time a very nauseous sight. "'She would crunch the wings of a lark, "'bones and all, between her teeth, although it were nine times as large as that of a full-grown turkey, and put a bit of bread into her mouth as big as two twelve-penny loaves. She drank out of a golden cup above a hogshead at a draught. Her knives were twice as long as a scythe, set straight upon the handle. The spoons, forks, and other instruments were all in the same proportion. I remember when Glumdalclitch carried me, out of curiosity, to see some of the tables at court— where ten or a dozen of these enormous knives and forks were lifted up together, I thought I had never till then beheld so terrible a sight. It is the custom that every Wednesday, which, as I have observed, is their Sabbath, the King and Queen, with the royal issue of both sexes, dine together in the apartment of His Majesty, to whom I now became a great favourite and at these times my little chair and table were placed at his left hand, before one of the salt cellars. This prince took a pleasure in conversing with me, inquiring into the manners, religion, laws, government, and learning of Europe, wherein I gave him the best account I was able. His apprehension was so clear, and his judgment so exact, that he made very wise reflections and observations upon all I said. But I confess— "'that after I had been a little too copious "'in talking of my own beloved country, "'of our trade and wars by sea and land, "'of our schisms in religion, "'and parties in the state, "'the prejudices of his education prevailed so far "'that he could not forbear taking me up in his right hand "'and stroking me gently with the other, "'after a hearty fit of laughing, "'asked me whether I was a Whig or Tory. "'Then turning to his first minister,' who waited behind him with a white staff, near as tall as the main mast of the royal sovereign, he observed. "'How contemptible a thing was human grandeur, which could be mimicked by such diminutive insects as I! And yet,' said he, "'I dare engage these creatures, have their titles and distinctions of honour. They contrive little nests and burrows that they call houses and cities. They make a figure in dress and equipage. They love, they fight. They dispute, they cheat, they betray.' And thus he continued on. While my colour came and went several times, with indignation to hear our noble country, the mistress of arts and arms, the scourge of France, the arbitress of Europe, the seat of virtue, piety, honour, and truth, the pride and envy of the world, so contemptuously treated. But as I was not in a condition to resent injuries, so upon mature thoughts I began to doubt whether I was injured or no. For after having been accustomed several months to the sight and converse of these people, and observed every object upon which I cast mine eyes to be of proportional magnitude, the horror I had at first conceived from their bulk and aspect was so far worn off, that if I had then beheld a company of English lords and ladies in their finery and birthday clothes, acting their several parts in the most courtly manner of strutting and bowing and pratting, To say the truth, I should have been strongly tempted to laugh as much at them as the king and his grandees did at me. Neither, indeed, could I forbear smiling at myself, when the queen used to place me upon her hand towards a looking-glass, by which both our persons appeared before me in full view, and there could be nothing more ridiculous than the comparison. So that I really began to imagine myself dwindled many degrees below my usual size— Nothing angered and mortified me so much as the Queen's Dwarf, who, being of the lowest stature that was ever in that country, for I verily think he was not full thirty feet high, became so insolent at seeing a creature so much beneath him, that he would always affect to swagger and look big as he passed by me in the Queen's antechamber, While I was standing on some table, talking with the Lords or Ladies of the Court, and he seldom failed of a smart word or two upon my littleness— against which I could only revenge myself by calling him brother, challenging him to wrestle, and such repartees as are usually in the mouths of court pages. One day, at dinner, this malicious little cub was so nettled with something I had said to him, that raising himself upon the frame of Her Majesty's chair, he took me up by the middle, as I was sitting down, not thinking any harm, and let me drop into a large silver bowl of cream, and then ran away as fast as he could. I fell over head and ears, and if I had not been a good swimmer it might have gone very hard with me. For Glumdalclitch, in that instant, happened to be at the other end of the room, and the Queen was in such a fright that she wanted presence of mind to assist me. But my little nurse ran to my relief and took me out, after I had swallowed above a quart of cream. I was put to bed. However, I received no other damage than the loss of a suit of clothes, which was utterly spoiled. The dwarf was soundly whipped, and as a further punishment forced to drink up the bowl of cream into which he had thrown me. Neither was he ever restored to favour, for soon after the queen bestowed him on a lady of high quality, so that I saw him no more, to my very great satisfaction, for I could not tell to what extremities such a malicious urchin might have carried his resentment." He had before served me a scurvy trick, which sent the queen a-laughing, although at the same time she was heartily vexed, and would have immediately cashiered him, if I had not been so generous as to intercede. Her Majesty had taken a marrow-bone upon her plate, and after knocking out the marrow placed the bone again in the dish erect, as it stood before. The dwarf, watching his opportunity, while Glumdal-Clitch was gone to the sideboard, mounted the stool that she stood on to take care of me at meals, took me up in both hands, and, squeezing my leg together, wedged them into the marrow-bone above my waist, where I stuck for some time and made a very ridiculous figure. I believe it was near a minute before any one knew what was become of me, for I thought it below me to cry out. But as princes seldom get their meat hot, my legs were not scalded, only my stockings and breeches in a sad condition— the dwarf, at my entreaty, had no other punishment than a sound whipping. I was frequently rallied by the queen upon account of my fearfulness, and she used to ask me whether the people of my country were as great cowards as myself. The occasion was this. The kingdom is much pestered with flies in summer, and these odious insects, each of them as big as a dunstable lark, hardly gave me any rest while I sat at dinner with their continual humming and buzzing about mine ears. They would sometimes alight upon my victuals, and leave their loathsome excrement, or spawn behind, which to me was very visible, though not to the natives of that country, whose large optics were not so acute as mine in viewing smaller objects. Sometimes they would fix upon my nose or forehead, where they stung me to the quick, smelling very offensively, and I could easily trace that vicious matter which our naturalists tell us enable those creatures to walk with their feet upwards upon a ceiling. I had much ado to defend myself against these detestable animals, and could not forbear starting when they came on my face. It was the common practice of the dwarf to catch a number of these insects in his hand, as schoolboys do among us, and let them out suddenly under my nose, on purpose to frighten me and divert the queen. My remedy was to cut them in pieces with my knife, as they flew in the air, wherein my dexterity was much admired. I remember one morning, when Glumdalclitch had set me in a box, upon a window, as she usually did in fair days, to give me air. For I durst not venture to let the box be hung on a nail out of the window, as we do with cages in England. After I had lifted up one of my sashes, and sat down at my table to eat a piece of sweet cake for my breakfast, above twenty wasps, allured by the smell, came flying into the room, humming louder than the drones of as many bagpipes. Some of them seized my cake, and carried it piecemeal away. Others flew about my head and face, confounding me with the noise, and putting me in the utmost terror of their stings. However, I had the courage to rise and draw my hanger and attack them in the air. I dispatched four of them, but the rest got away, and I presently shut my window. These insects were as large as partridges. I took out their stings, found them an inch and a half long, and as sharp as needles. I carefully preserved them all, and having since shown them, with some other curiosities, in several parts of Europe, upon my return to England, I gave three of them to Gresham College— and kept the fourth for myself. End of chapter three, part two.